0: Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Therner. Today I'm going to be talking with Professor Terence Keel about his new book, Divine Variations, How Christian Thought Became Racial Science, published by Stanford University Press in 2018. In Divine Variations, Professor Keel explains the persistence of racial ideas in modern science by unearthing the conceptual continuities that hold together four centuries of research into human variation. With trenchant analyses of Christian intellectual history and the founding figures of ethnology, Keel documents an infrastructure of thought about universalism, the supersession of knowledge, creation, and human dispersion that shaped and still shape the science of race. And through case studies of 20th century public health and genomics, divine variation shows how these intellectual patterns reemerge time and again. Rather than exclusive spheres... Keel's book illuminates modern science's intellectual depths to theology, and in doing so, presents new ways to understand science as historically and socially situated. It is with my great pleasure that I share with you today my interview with Professor Terence Keel. Professor Terence Keel, thank you for coming to the show, and I I am so pleased to have this opportunity to discuss this book with you. Can you explain how you came to this project and, and what its genesis was?
1: Definitely. One thing for me, to, I guess I could say about that is you could say that uh, after the sequencing of the human genome in, in the in 2000, where Bill Clinton, along with Tony Blair, announced that humans were 99.9% the same and that there were really no genetic basis to race, there was a sense of kind of a calm, a kind of sigh of relief that finally we had overcome arguably was a 50-year debate that goes back to the early modern synthesis of the 1950s about whether or not races are real in terms of of a genetic sense. But of course, what happens is that uh, shortly after the the 2000s, um, geneticists determine a way to see these variations in what they call um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are basically changes in the amino acid patterns that make up our DNA. And from there, being able to extrapolate variation that fits right back into traditional racial categories. So race gets reconstituted in a moment where we believe we finally have kind of overcome racial distinctions within science. And I, as a young scholar, saw this return as an opportunity to think about belief structures within science and specifically belief structures around ideas of race and if you were to think about this historically you could say that oh at least since the 15th century uh in the west uh religion has played a very strong role in the way that we think about human origins and the way that we imagine uh, racial distinctions And the idea that somehow in the last 150 years with the emergence of Darwinian evolution, that somehow we've overcome what we could say four centuries of conditioning and shaping how we think about race, we could overcome that in just a short period of time, didn't really seem to make sense to me historically. And so I had the opportunity to kind of explore this question, From the perspective of someone who's trained as a historian and as a scholar of religion, but who also uh, had access to many of the kind of early social scientific uh, and STS, which is science technology studies literature that was being written at the time of kind of the emergence of race again in, in early genetic research. And what I began to see are kind of patterns of thinking about race and belief that looked very old to me, that had connections to early biblical notions about human difference, that had connections to early theological debates about the order and structure of nature, and therefore also the kind of regularity of human behavior and thought. And I wanted to explore this, these links to see if uh, historically I could think about the last, Um, Two to 300 years of scientific ideas around race to show a kind of sustained connection and link between Christianity and ideas of of race as they impact the development of science. And so I suppose you could say part of the genesis of the project is, I guess, the accident of timing, I suppose. I mean, as I began to start thinking about these issues, it was right when uh, a lot of the uh, buzz around the new genetics the new race uh concept within genetics began to really kind of uh, generate controversy and debate
0: can you describe a little bit about what that is for for listeners who aren't uh too familiar about how race is getting reconstituted in genetics
1: sure well so when you get your genome sequence which now we have readily available on consumer markets Uh, direct-to-consumer testing through 23andMe and Ancestry.com, you're able now to determine what proportion of your ancestry dates back to Europe or West Africa or Asia, for example. Well, that technology is based upon kind of a, a tool that population geneticists use to distinguish groups based upon variations within their genome, and specifically the ATGC patterns of amino acids that make up our genetic structure. And essentially, these single nucleotide uh, polymorphisms, as they're called, can be studied and then aggregated to be able to show, well, people from West African ancestry have uh, this variation in their SNPs, as they're called. That distinguish them from Europeans in ways that might help explain differences in disease, and may explain predispositions to certain behaviors, and in the minds of some sort of conservative thinkers, it may explain differences in intelligence. For example, with the sequencing of the human genome, though, in, in two thousand, there was a hope that we would finally kind of overcome and transcend this way of thinking. And you know, prominent geneticists like Richard Lewontin. Who's really famous article in 1974, the appointment of human diversity, really kind of argued, hey, race doesn't really have any meaning biologically or genetically, and we need to really think differently about human diversity. And Stephen Jay Gould follows up with his own study showing that arguments about intelligence and IQ don't have any validity. These debates around distinctions between groups come back onto the scene when population geneticists are actually ab- actually able to say, aha. You know we can actually divide humans into different continental groups based upon their genetic ancestry, and this could be the basis for really trying to understand health and behavior in ways that are really unprecedented. So this is the the, the current environment that we are in, and as we are in an era of precision medicine, which aims to say, you know, we can create a drug therapy specific to your genetic background that might make it so that a particular drug you're taking for diabetes, for example, or, or for a thyroid medication might be better absorbed by your body based upon your genetic profile. And it so happens that knowing something about your ancestry could help us do that. Well, that's a certain type of race thinking. And it, in many ways, contests, I think, some of the optimism that Richard Lewontin and Stephen Jake Gould and many others Had going into the end of the 20th century, that we would maybe be beyond race. But it turns out that we aren't. So, this is the the context in which we are living. And I, with this book, wanted to look at this as not merely about scientific discoveries or science unearthing facts that were buried deep in our genome. I wanted to think about this as well, there are structures of belief that incline us to look for distinctions that appear to be racial and that if you carry certain beliefs about the natural world, carry certain beliefs about meaningful distinctions between humans, might that incline you, whether you're a scientist or a religious person, to think that races do in fact exist? The book really tries to explore that question historically. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, so one of the issues that historians of race always have to deal with is, is defining what exactly race is and what we're talking about. And and I think as we often teach it, especially to undergraduates, um, you know, we teach scientific racism as being this moment in the 19th century where race takes on this very, very hard biological uh, sense. And I'm wondering a little bit about how you are defining race as a mode of thought, as a way of thinking, and, and how to extend it beyond this this very narrow definition that we often give it.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the definition that I use in the book comes from looking at patterns of ideas over multiple centuries of of debate. And the definition that I use is that a race are a group of people that are uh, constituted by shared genetic or biological traits or shared physical traits and characteristics that are then passed on to their descendants. And that scientists are interested in these shared traits and distinctions because there's a belief that knowledge of these distinctions and their origins help us understand contemporary present-day groups. So race is always, is at once a historical-oriented way of thinking, right? Traits, ancestry of the past. But it's also always concerned about the present in the sense of, well, the knowledge that I might have of someone who has European ancestry, is relevant because it bears on their health and behavior for the present. And so what race does within the context of science is lock people or connect people to imagined or genetically reconstructed people of the past. And so the definition of race at that level may or may not be political. It may or may not be ideological in the sense of buying into certain types of hierarchies. And so what I tried to do is to acknowledge obviously when those moments are happening within the book, but the point was not merely to document that because I think there's quite a bit of literature on looking at the kind of uh, negative implications of thinking about races. What I tried to show is that, well, you know, to even imagine that the natural and also the social world is constructed such that humans appear to have homogenous traits that distinguish, let's say, East Asians from South Africans. What are the beliefs in play for that worldview? And when you ask that question, uh, it leads to asking questions, well, what cultural traditions, particularly in the West, where most of the intellectual energy has been spent developing these notions, what intellectual and cultural traditions have shaped the way Westerners have imagined racial distinction. And to pursue that question, you run into Christian thinking, and particularly what I call in the book, Christian Intellectual History, which is a way of thinking about Christianity not merely as a belief or a a tradition of practice, but also a system of thinking, uh, habits of mind, Constructs that are passed along over time that allow people to orient themselves around certain questions when it comes to what makes us different, what are the origins of humans, and how this might explain assumed racial distinctions. And so I try to unpack part of this tradition that comes out of Christian thinking, and some of it involves biblical concepts, some of this involves theological debates that are outside of the Bible. Some of it involves kind of innovative ideas that draw or are inspired by biblical reasoning or theological concepts, but are expressed in ways that aren't immediately or don't immediately appear to be religious, but in fact have a profound kind of religious undertone to them. And so um, from that angle, the book is trying to rethink the Practices and beliefs that constitute science. And this, you know, is part of what science studies and historians of science try to do when they study a scientific phenomenon. They are are not just interested in the results and data that's produced by the scientists, but also the social and cultural context that uh, allows for a scientific idea or theory to emerge. And when it comes to race, I think it requires thinking carefully, and historically about Christianity and in its influence over how we think about human diversity.
0: And, and so, you know, so two figures kind of loom large here, uh, especially as we're talking about the early development of racial science. And, and this is, um, of course, Johann Blumenbach and Josiah Nott. For For listeners who aren't Uh, too familiar with this history. Can you explain who these characters are and why they're so important to this history
1: and and what you're trying to argue about them? Yes. I'll start with um, Johann Blumenbach. Blumenbach is a 18th century German intellectual who is credited for inaugurating what you might call the secular study of human diversity. At his time, he would have called this sort of ethnology, which would have been the study of human origins and the study of the distinctions between human groups, but doing so in a way that doesn't explicitly reference the Bible or doesn't explicitly reference theology. And Blumenbach was working in Germany at a time where the German Academy was beginning to distance itself from its more confessional. Uh, connections to the church and begin to chart out new forms of thinking that were inspired by a kind of uh, secular enlightenment em- uh, emphasis on empiricism, rationality, and evidence. And so uh, Blumenbach was working at Göttingen University, which at the time was one of the more prominent uh, academic institutions in all of Europe and surely uh, within Germany. And he began to collect a large uh, cache of human skulls to determine what were the traits that humans carried within them to then be able to determine the distinctions across the racial groups. And what Blumenbach does uh, near the end of the 18th century is he realizes that there are Distinctions between the races, but these distinctions seem to all come from a common ancestor. And so he finds that in the Caucasus Mountains, the skulls of the Georgian populations there appear to have a type of symmetrical form that uh, suggests to him that these were the kind of uh, original human types that all other racial groups, Asians, Africans, and Native Americans, and Malaysians must have been the descendants of. And what he does that I think is interesting for the book is that Blumenbach translates what has otherwise been a long-standing religious argument about human common descent from Adam into a secular scientific vocabulary that mirrors or mimics the biblical story of common human descent, but does so in a way that doesn't explicitly reference the christian valences to this debate and what it does is it helps solidify this idea that shared human ancestry is scientifically verifiable while at the same time it shows that science can provide data to demonstrate that human distinctions are real in some measure. And so there's a bit of a tension there. Humans share a common ancestor, but there are mm-hmm. racial distinctions. The so Blumenbach kind of inaugurates this tradition that carries its way into the 19th century and gets us into the American thinkers that I talk about um, in the second chapter of the book. The American anthropologists in the 19th century are often operating in the shadow of European institutions, and particularly the German Academy. France and Germany are kind of the intellectual hubs where ethnologists and scientists and physicians who are American go to do courses of study to really round out their scientific education. And many American thinkers are in dialogue or in conversation with. Their German counterparts in the 19th century, and here Blumenbach looms fairly large in the American academy and the American imagination because of his ability to make an argument about human diversity, but doing so in a way that has a measure of empiricism and a measure of uh, scientific truth to it that again distinguishes it from a kind of theological or pastoral argument. Well. The American Polygenists are interesting because they are a group of American ethnologists who are, although not all of them are American, but they're operating in the United States or in America, who are very much inspired by the traditions of the Enlightenment and therefore are interested in providing evidence and data and thinking scientifically about human diversity. So They're following in the footsteps of Johann However, They begin to raise serious questions that never really occurred to Blumenbach in the 18th century. One of those questions are: Well, if humans do in fact share a common ancestor, what? How long did it take for the first human to give birth to the second human type? How long did it take? And then in their minds, Europeans were the first humans. How long did it take for Africans to emerge? having been descendants of the first European type. This is the question that matters to the polygenists in the 19th century because the early field of geology is beginning to uh, rethink the antiquity of the earth. And we are beginning to imagine that the earth is not merely a recent creation, but is something that has existed for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. This then um, directly challenges the long-standing biblical idea that the earth was created in a short period of time and that humans were created shortly after the emergence of the earth. Well, geology by the 19th century, in the 1840s and the 1850s, geologists are beginning to really rethink that and they separate earth history from human history. This creates an opportunity for the polygenists really test well, can we imagine human dis- uh, descent under a short timeline that is demarcated by the Bible? The polygenists were asking a question that really never occurred to Blumenbach. Blumenbach never explicitly theorized the length of time that it took for the original Caucasian to give birth to the Malaysian or the Native American. And this, I believe, has to do with the fact that he was, although On the surface, a secular thinker still was operating within a context that relied upon Christian thinking to imagine race and human origins. This is a a larger pattern that i read throughout the work, which is to say that to imagine race within a scientific framework commits one to a series of ideas and beliefs that are often not recognized. And those belief systems have a history that links up to Christian thinking. The 19th century apologists were aware of this, and they were saying things like, we need an account of human history that gets Moses out of the story. We need to distance ourselves from the biblical tradition and open ourselves up to the possibility that humans actually don't share a common ancestor. And if humans are recent creations, it seems inconceivable that in a period of time, which at, during the mid-19th century was imagined roughly around four to 5,000 years, is the time that separates Adam from contemporary groups. And so what Josiah Knott, along with G.R. Glitton and um, Thomas Morton do, is they take up another study of human skulls, and they look at what they believe are persistent traits that distinguish Europeans from Native Americans and Africans, and they realize these distinctions are so permanent and long lasting that it seems inconceivable that they could have happened or occurred from a common human ancestor and therefore the only valid scientific position one can hold on this question is that humans are derived from separate stocks and they do this really elaborate argument that links human types to their geography so in the book i have in the text these really marvelous illustrations that josiah not and g.r produce produced that link Native Americans to the indigenous animals and species to North America. and The same for Europeans, showing a kind of formal biological symmetry that human groups share with their immediate environment. And this, for them, is an argument against this notion that somehow uh, there was a shared common ancestor across the races. And so the 19th century represents a bit of a reversal um, of the position charted out by Blumenbach, which was one of showing science can verify common human ancestry. Well, the polygenists interrupt that by arguing, well, really, if we're going to have a truly sort of empirically based position, we have to question the validity of shared human ancestry and do so in such a way that is aware of the long-standing influence of Christianity over this framework. Well, what I ultimately show is that although Josiah Nan, and others are trying to explicitly distance himself from the Bible they continue to harbor theological and Christian ideas Josiah not continues to assume that there is some sort of creator that is responsible for the formal symmetry he sees with within sort of the continent of Europe and the various humans that are there or the continent of Africa for example and that even though he is explicitly trying to make a secular scientific argument he cannot emancipate himself from the cultural and theological traditions that make the question of race intelligible to begin with and this then gets back to a, again a theme that i pursue throughout the work to say to what degree is the very question of thinking about human racial racial origins to what degree is that actually a scientific concept perhaps we might be better to think about this in terms of it being a theological or religious concept in its origin that sets up a series of belief structures that, if they're carried out in the context of, scientists, of science or politics, reproduce these sort of early primitive uh, rudimentary notions that fundamentally have their core structure or, or, or their origin uh, within a religious context. And the 19th century polygenists are a great way to talk about this because they're doing all this work before Darwin arrives on the scene. And, uh, and ultimately Darwin, of course, as we know, Says well, in fact, I can make an argument for shared human ancestry. It just involves extending the human timeline, eons into the past, which then thus provides not only an opportunity to say that shared ancestors could give rise to racial diversity, but that the original human, if you will, uh, had antecedent forms that link humans to the the primate world in ways that anthropologists, following Darwin into the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, spent a tremendous amount of time trying to show the links between the human and the animal world.
0: And so one of these, uh, one of these habits of thought that you discuss, uh, especially in regards to the uh, polygenicists and, and Josiah dot is this idea of Christian supersession and, and how this is uh, reiterated by uh, the polygenists. Can you explain what that is and, and, and what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, Christian supersessionism really is an idea, it's a theological idea that has its origins in the early church. In the book, I turn to some of the recent scholarship by Denise Buell and others who have gone back and looked at the writings of some of the early church fathers and some of the early New Testament authors, St. Paul, for example, or um, Justin Martyr, and it began to see that the early church had a bit of a dilemma when it, became, when it came to thinking about what made it unique when we think about the relationship between this sort of uh, this coming of a new Messiah uh, in Jesus and what this means for the covenant that God made for the ancient Israelites. And what the early church fathers began to argue is that Jesus represents a new covenant and that This covenant replaces the commitment that God made to the ancient Israelites. The the Christians represent a new chosen people. They are, if you will, a group of people that supersede the ancient Israelites in terms of their importance for human history, and that theologically, the traditions of truth and belief that follow from the Christian church replace the antecedent beliefs of the ancient Israelites. This theology of supersessionism is something that has been a kind of constant theological current of Christian thinking from the early church really into the present, because it it forces Christians to think about the uniqueness of their tradition in relation to their very clearly Jewish origins. And many historians uh, of Europe talk about the amount of intellectual activity that. European thinkers have put into erasing the Jewish origins of European thought and European Christianity. What I argue is that in the early church, and this is again drawing on some of the recent scholarship, the early church thinkers were able to use this theology to not just sort of displace uh, the ancient Israelites, but also to articulate a type of group identity that looks an awful lot like what we might call racial groups. And that this theology of Christian supersessionism really is a kind of an early, in its early germ form, and an articulation of Christian uniqueness, whereby humans are linked together by virtue of this set of beliefs in such a way that's very similar to how racial groups are linked to an imagined ancient past that carries with it a type of persistent trait, or in this case, in a religious context, a belief structure that binds people, irregardless of time and space. And so Christian supersessionism creates a kind of intellectual space to think in racial terms. And what's remarkable is that I, I make the argument that not only does it provide a way of thinking about race, but it also provides a space to think about the importance of scientific knowledge over and against religious knowledge over and against cultural knowledge. So, for example, when Blumenbach in the 18th century is self-consciously trying to provide an account of human origins that does not reference Christian theology or the Bible, he is engaging in a type of supersessionist form of reasoning in that he wants to articulate a scientific and empirically based account of human origins that replaces a long-standing and theological religious argument human origins the polygenists in the 19th century are explicit about this they say we need an account of human origins that replaces the writings of moses who was assumed to be the sort of author of the of the books of genesis that provide us the kind of origins of of life as we now know it and so supersessionism becomes a type of methodology of analysis or argument that uh incline scientific thinkers to say that their account of, of knowledge and truth, in this particular case, the truth of human origins, replaces a uh, previous knowledge tradition. Now, the irony though is that the polygenists create something or create a space that I call looks an awful lot like Christian supersessionism turned against itself, in that the argument against a biblical notion of shared human ancestry opens up space for an argument of scientific thinking that turns against all religious traditions for thinking about human origins. Not just Christianity gets replaced, but the indigenous knowledge structures of Native American peoples, for example, the knowledge structures of non-European traditions, they all get erased through the emergence of a evolutionary framework of human origins that supersedes all cultural traditions and this is precisely what darwinian evolution provides us at the end of the 19th century it's a universal account of human origins that is more ancient and more truthful if you will in the mind many than any religious or cultural tradition could imagine and the evidence is one that's based not upon scripture or theology but upon biology and eventually in the early 20th century mid-20th century would be genetics and so that supersessionism becomes a a type of epistemic practice that modern scientists carry into the present. And this is something that I arrived to this conclusion um, by doing an analysis of how scientists make their arguments. Peter Harrison makes a similar point in his book, The Territories of Science and Religion, where he argues that uh, the idea of Christian truth being both universal and objective creates a kind of epistemic opening that later scientists would fill through evolutionary thinking and other forms of scientific knowledge that are thought to be objective and value neutral and therefore replace cultural religious belief systems. I think a similar story is happening when it comes to the scientific study of race.
0: And so there's a lot in this book that I, I that we're clearly not going to have time to get to today and, and, and needs to be left for the listeners to, to read and, and discover on their own. But I was hoping you could describe a little bit about this man, Charles Roman, and, and his significance here.
1: Charles Roman is an African-American physician that I write about in the third chapter of the book, where I'm discussing the progressive era and the effort to use science and medicine to Essentially, improve the biology of Americans. And Charles Roman works for the Public Health Service. He's commissioned by the Public Health Service to travel throughout the South to visit military men, black military regiments, to train them on sexual health and wellness, train them on proper biological hygiene, if you will. Roman uh, is trained as a as a ear, nose, and throat physician. Uh, He's working out of Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's widely regarded uh, because of his involvement in the uh, National Negro Medical Association, which is the counterpart to the American Medical Association. But in the early 20th century, African-Americans, because of Jim Crow segregation, were not allowed to be members of the American Medical Association. So they create their own association. And Roman is chartered for writing the kind of the founding document Uh, that would organize the kind of principles of the association. He is someone who is a very powerful orator. He has a very strong public presence, uh, both in terms of his traveling lectureships, but also in terms of him being a bit of a lay preacher. He is both a scientist and someone who um, occasionally preaches uh, in the churches that he is involved in in Nashville. Now, what's interesting for me about Roman is that the environment that he's operating in is a complex one. On the one hand, he is writing and thinking in the 1920s, early 1930s, uh, and he is trying to um, understand what is happening with the race concept in the field of public health. And what he recognizes is the tension that I believe he understands in the sense of a kind of unresolved intellectual project that Darwin sets into motion and that we really don't resolve in the 19th, I mean, the 20th century, which is this. While science can provide evidence of shared human ancestry, race thinking or the idea that, well, subsequent to that shared ancestry, humans have developed meaningful distinctions, distinctions that are so meaningful insofar as their ability to explain why some racial groups are susceptible to diseases, and in the Roman's context, venereal aerial disease really occupied the imagination of many public health physicians. That somehow African groups have developed a type of predisposition that makes thinking in terms of common ancestry not significant for studying human diversity you get in the early twentieth century this explosion of research claiming that there were race specific dispositions to alcoholism and venereal disease and intelligence. And this effectively erases or eclipse eclipses the significance of shared common human ancestry. And Roman is painfully aware of this. And he's realizing as he's beginning to travel around the country and talk to African American um military men, as well as his fellow physicians and counterparts, that what's being lost in public health research is an attention to two things. One, the importance of shared human ancestry, which he believes is an anchor that is both scientific and theological. He, in the early 20th century, is a, is a, is a Christian, and he recognizes that this belief is one that is a theological position, and as a Christian nation, and as a scientist in a Christian nation, he has a certain responsibility to protect this notion because he believes it not just to be empirically true but also morally true. He says, if you spend enough time thinking about common human ancestry, what you begin to realize is that the changes that we see in so-called racial groups are, in fact changes that have everything to do with history, or discrimination or social structure or the environment, as he talked about it. And so, what he says is essentially good public health research has to defend common human ancestry and do so by giving attention to the social, historical forces that create changes across racial groups. And if we pay attention to this, we begin to realize that if African Americans have a disposition to certain diseases, it's not because of innate, unchangeable biological essences, it's because of the legacy of slavery and the African diaspora and the displacement of black people and their being subjugated to Jim Crow segregation. These are factors in his mind that help explain racial distinction. And so this is really important because what he's effectively trying to do is work out the kind of theoretical loopholes that Darwinian evolution kind of leaves unresolved. Darwin acknowledges, yes, there's shared common human ancestry, but there are meaningful cultural differences between racial groups. And Darwinian evolution really doesn't provide a kind of clear roadmap on what to make of those distinctions. And Darwin himself does a bit of doublespeak. He says that, you know, there's no real concentrate that allows me to say that there are permanent races between permanent distinctions between the races. But then he acknowledges that there are, lasting cultural distinctions. And these cultural distinctions have a, a tremendous impact on the uh, reproductive habits and success of certain groups over others. And so, so what Roman is trying to work out is to what degree those distinctions are permanent and how they might be changeable if public health researchers and physicians take more seriously the built structure and the built uh, social structural environment. As it impacts human health and behavior. And in a way, Roman's battle is something that public health researchers are are continuing to fight. And we have really more complex and sophisticated models for thinking about things like exposure to environmental toxins, the influence of stress, the influence of racism, the um, subjection of certain racial groups to contaminated environments and not others, and how these built structural uh factors help explain the biological variation that we see across human groups and if we're not paying attention to this it's very easy to slide into a type of genetic reductionist argument that simply says well this particular group has a disposition because it's innate public health research is beginning to to reverse that in really profound ways and say things like well you know redlining which is a a method of keeping African Americans and other groups uh, segregated from white populations. Redlining creates a kind of environmental structure that often leads to the development of properties and parts of cities that are either uh, subpar in terms of their infrastructure or subpar in terms of their being contaminated by certain types of um, industrial products like smokestacks, for example. Or, uh, radiation, et cetera, and that these uh, legal practices subject groups to forms of discrimination that later affect their health and behavior. And it's not merely because of their ancestry, it's because of uh, recent American social policy that has a huge impact on how we imagine uh, distinctions between racial groups. And researchers like Nancy Krieger at Harvard, for example, are doing a tremendous amount of work trying to quantify these types of social factors. And so Roman is important for this story because although he's a progressive era figure working in the early 20th century, many of the intellectual problems he's trying to work through remain with us today.
0: Yeah. Uh, So this covers most of what I want to ask you about the book. Are are there elements that we haven't covered that you want
1: to make sure are here in the interview? I think that uh, it's important to think about. Some of the recent scholarship that in the last recent years is beginning to emerge that I think is changing how we think about science and religion. And in many ways, what my book is doing is contributing to this change. There was once a generation of scholarship that was really committed to saying that science and religion are constituted by wholly separate spheres of knowledge and that to do great scholarship on either of these fields is to think about them in isolation. Well, that is being, has been seriously revised in recent years, but often that revision has taken place in fields like physics and in evolutionary biology, kind of broadly conceived. Where there has been a gap is thinking about fields that are more close to humans, more close to how society affects all of us. And these are fields that include things like genetics and public health and medicine. And so the uh, case studies, if you will, that I explore in the book across each chapter are case studies that are close to the thriving of humans under certain environments. So I'm looking at public health and genetics and biology and ethnology, for example, and trying to say that, you know, in these fields, you can see the lasting influence of religion in the way that we think about race and that this then should force us to kind of pause a bit and have a a measure of, I think, humility when it comes to thinking about somehow we are children of the kind of secular enlightenment. We've emancipated ourselves from these religious traditions and we kind of have a, a theory of scientific diversity that is freed of religion and freed of of the cultural beliefs of the past. That actually isn't the case. And in fact, many of these early cultural structures continue to animate the questions that scientists ask. And so part of what I I see myself doing in the book is charting a kind of historical territory so as to open up the possibility of thinking differently about human diversity, thinking in ways that don't require us to reduce diversity in terms of race, but we might imagine your location or your zip code Or your gender, for example, in terms of the social structures that work upon you by virtue of having different types of genders, as we imagine them socially, these things may be as uh, as important to your life chances than any notion of ancient ancestry. And I think this is the a very kind of fruitful way of imagining uh, science and religion that I think avoids some of the kind of intellectual traps that don't leave us, I think, in the best of places to. Think about what science is saying and how it's changing or influencing our society in the moment,
0: yeah, oh. and you know when we think about the the kind of traditional narrative uh, of racial science as being this pseudoscience of the nineteenth century, it you know we get a very triumphalist sense of ourselves that we've been emancipated from these erroneous past ways of thinking. And it seems that your narrative in your history here instead uh, really um, guides us to the, the hard work of of anti-racism on kind of the on the very uh, gritty material level that we live in.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I think that um, that's what I'm trying to set out to do in the work. And I think it involves saying you know, scientists and physicians and geneticists, they carry beliefs, and it's worth interrogating those beliefs to see the degree to which believing in certain ideas about nature and biology to the degree which that inclines us to think racially. And if those beliefs can be interrogated and perhaps set down, that might open up possibility to think more creatively, and I think, with more imagination to explain why humans vary. And I, that's the hope. Well,
0: so, uh, what are you working on next?
1: My next book project is an examination of ideas that are being developed during the culture wars around ideas of society and biology. And what I want to do in this next project is to think through how 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 was it possible that we currently have a field like epigenetics, which is a scientific field that says you have genetic code, but you also have the kind of transmission of information to proteins that is constituted by the epigenome, and that the built environment, your exposure to toxins and environmental hazards and stress, et cetera. These create chemical effects that change how proteins are expressed. Essentially genetic expression is variable in ways that are really unprecedented. Well, if this field of epigenetics begins to sort of make major discoveries in the kind of social upheaval that happens during the context of the culture wars, and the culture wars, uh, Period that I'm defining roughly the 1960s up until about uh, the early 2000s, where the emergence of a new left with the uh, civil rights movement and the second wave feminism and um, a kind of critique of traditional America begins to open up a way of reimagining how society ought to function and the more sort of harmful effects of social structure on humans' lives. And what I want to do in this project is think about how the new left emerging in the 1960s creates a kind of intellectual space that I believe shapes the way that biologists begin to start thinking about society such that by the time we get to the end of the 20th century, we begin to have a field like epigenetics, which is not just interested in sort of fixed biology, but is interested in how the environment and the built social structure around the environment um, that affect all of us in our daily lives uh, really has much more of an impact on who we are as human beings than we could have ever imagined. And so this is a bit of an intellectual history as much as it is a kind of science studies approach that tries to look at this more recent period of the last 30, 40 years as being really crucial for conceptions of society and biology that are really i think redefining our world in really meaningful ways now
0: wow i uh cannot wait to read that and i hope i get the opportunity to interview you about it thank you so much for uh this interview it's and for writing this incredible book which i suggest to everyone and uh
1: thank you for your time thank you lance it's been a pleasure and i hope to to talk with you soon